This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and FPC Gulfport on YouTube. noticed when one person yawns when one person yawns what's the reaction that other people have well you know what the reaction is if you see someone yawn it does something and suddenly whether it's you or someone to your left or your right suddenly other people begin to yawn in the same way when someone talks about food there's something about the conversation alone that crosses a tripwire in the brain or the stomach prompts one to get hungry in the same way if you're watching a tv show you might see that whatever you're watching and whatever the content is of that which you're watching can affect your mood if you have a pulse you've experienced these things some experience by which the actions or words of others prompt a change in your own behaviors and thoughts and sometimes the effect is bad. Sometimes it's not simply yawning that other people prompt us to do. If we spend a lot of our time hanging out with people who are, um, I don't know, overtly critical or cynical or what have you, what effect does that have on us? Well, it has the effect of making us a little more critical and cynical as well. If the TV shows that we watch are filled with violence, sexual content, or innuendo, this can have an effect on us. If we're focusing so much on depressing news or political haranguing from either side, these things can have an effect upon us. Other people have the capacity, whether we believe it or like it or not, other people have the capacity to change our own moods and our actions and our own thought life. That which we sense, that which we hear, that which is done in our presence, so much as a yawn, can affect us and cause a change, sometimes negative, in our own actions, choices, and thoughts. If our brain can be affected simply by watching someone else yawn, then you better believe that there are 10,000 other things that will happen even this very day that affect our mentality. Now, let's say that's true. Now, if you can't control your instinct to yawn when someone else yawns, if we can't so much as control how we're affected by some of these stimuli, if we can't control all of these things, then what can we control? Well, in today's text, Paul's going to suggest a couple of things. One thing is we can control those individuals or those sources or those TV shows or what have you, those things that influence us. We can put a wall, a fortress around our heart and not let wickedness and depravity sail within, at least not so freely. So that's one thing we can control, those that we associate with, those shows we watch, those things that we allow to infiltrate our hearts and minds or our children's hearts and minds. We have control over that. Secondarily, we have control over what we think about. And that's the driving focus of today's text. We have an ability to control the thoughts of our own mind. Which is good because the thoughts that we think, whether we realize it or not, they direct our path and our actions and our choices consistently. There was a, this was in high school, I went through driver's ed more than one time. I remember one thing more than anything else that I learned in driver's ed, and here's what it was. One of my challenges in driver's ed, especially when you're new and you're buying the wheels, you know, you're looking around, you're seeing all the different things. And my instructor, you know, with his foot near that brake that they have on the other side of the car, my instructor says, hey, hey, you, you got to stop that. You can't be rubbernecking around. And I said, well, I'm just making sure I know where everyone's at. And he says, look, see that bend up there? Keep your eyes dead set in the middle of the turn. 
Keep your eyes in the middle of the turn. doesn't matter what's going on over here or over here. You keep your eyes on where you're going. And he said, as you turn, as you make that turn, if your eyes are focused in the turn, not focused to your left or to your right, you will naturally drift towards the direction that your eyes are focused in. If you're looking to the left, if you're going around a bend and you're sitting there looking at the guardrails or the cars over there or McDonald's or what have you, you can't help but drift slightly, incrementally, possibly towards your left. Look to the lane where you're going. Look to the lane that you want to remain in, and that's where your focus and trajectory will be. Your focus, in the context of our spiritual life, your thoughts, the things you think about, the things you look at, the things that are at the center of the bullseye for you, will affect where you go. They will affect the outcome. And in today's text, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, look, there's all manner of things out there you could look at. Many of them are bad. Most of them are bad. But you, Christian, you, you focus on that which is good, that which is noble, that which is true, that which is valuable, that which is good and right, that which glorifies God. You look to the other things, guess where you're going to drift? Our focus, the things we think about, the influences that come into our life and the way that these coalesce, they will impact our choices for the good or for the bad. And so we should think upon and meditate upon that which is good. Let's look at verse 8. There's only two verses in today's text. Let's look at verse 8, then we'll work our way into the next one. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy... Then meditate on these things. All right. Before we go any further, let's briefly recap the book of Philippians. Because this is a series, it's helpful to remember where we've been. Well, over the past eight weeks that preceded us today, we've seen that the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians, is a letter or an epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to a small church plant in a city called Philippi, which was in a region called Macedonia. Now, when Paul wrote it, he was where? He was in prison in what city? In Rome. So Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's writing to a region called Macedonia and to the Philippian church plant there. Well, the Philippian church plant in the area of Macedonia was also a Roman colony. Both Paul and the Philippians knew what it was like to be under the boot of Rome as well as what it was like to try to work out your faith in a pagan context, a context that did not yield to King Jesus. Now, because of that, when Paul's writing to the Philippians, he knows what they're undergoing. He had planted that church. He knew the people by name. He loved the people there. He knew the hardships, and he knew that some of the hardships would be Rome and would be paganism. Other hardships would be the wolves, the false teachers that would come into their midst and start to teach a false doctrine. Now, because of the nature of the threats that were outside the church and inside the church, he knew that although things by and large were going well in Philippi, that the threat was always there that things could go awry. He also knew that there was a low level of bickering over some peripheral issues. And last week we talked about that. There was two women named Euodia and Syntyche who had some issue. And remember last week we saw that Paul was imploring both of them. He said, look, you guys got to get on the same page. You have to get of common mind. So Paul had attempted to diffuse their issue. Now, because the issue may have stemmed from the anxiety of either these two women or the church at large, the continuation of Paul's thoughts last week was this. He talked about anxiety, and he says, look, don't be anxious. Be anxious about nothing. Yes, there are Romans, and yes, there are pagans, and yes, there will be false teachers that will come down the pike. Yes, yes, and yes, but don't be anxious. 
He said, be anxious about nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Anxiety, mutual anxiety, shared anxiety, whether it's in a church or a community, can come about because there's some hardship on everybody's radar. In Philippi, there was hardships on the radar of the local church, and so it was natural they'd be anxious to a degree. And Paul says, look, don't. He says, this isn't healthy for you, and it's not healthy for the church plant. Be anxious about nothing, he said in verse 6. Well, in today's reading, verses 8 and 9, and remember, this is a continuation of thought, which is why in verse 8 he says, finally, because he's continuing the thoughts, concluding the thoughts that he's just been delivering. In verse 8 he says, look, if you want to stop being so anxious and you want to be of the same frame of mind, it would be helpful if you started to focus on those things that are good. It would be helpful if you started to think on that which is holy and good and just and right. When I was a kid, there was a time when I was in the doctor's office. My father worked in the health field. My mom was a school nurse. Well, one day I was in the hospital because I had my own health issue, and I was anxious about it because they were going to run tests. And I was sitting in the waiting room, and up on the TV in the waiting room, they had a baseball game going on. Well, in the 80s, I was a baseball fan. I still am a baseball fan. It was a little easier then. But I was a huge baseball fan. I collected the baseball cards. The Oakland A's were my team. Dave Kingman was my favorite player. I'm watching. I'm concerned about the test. I know I'm going to see the doctor. i got to go down the hallway into some scary room. So I have all that on my radar, all the anxiety there. But I'm sitting there. I'm watching the TV. Dave Kingman comes up for the Oakland A's. He hits a home run. In that minute, I could not have been more excited because of my affinity for the A's and for baseball and for all these things. I was over the moon. I remember for five, ten minutes being very excited about this thing. I don't remember during that time frame being worried about the test, being worried about where I was. So here's the thing. I was still in the same situation. I was still in the same circumstance. My circumstance had not changed. It had not improved. And yet I was happy. Why? Because my focus had changed. My focus would change. It was on something better, something different, something that a ten-year-old kid could rejoice over. It was great. It was a great, a great moment. My focus changed even if my circumstances didn't. And because of that, I was far more contented, at least for the five, ten minutes of which I thought about these things. It's this sort of change of focus that Paul is inviting the Philippians to engage in. He says, look, there's good stuff out there. It obviously wasn't baseball, but there's other good things, Philippians. There's things that are true and good and right and just. And you have a choice. What are you going to think about? Where's your mind going to go? What's going to be at the center of your bullseye? In verse 8, Paul's saying, you and I have a choice, irrespective of how good or bad our circumstances are. And the Philippians, for what it's worth, their circumstances were bad. Their circumstances were bad. And yet Paul says, you have a choice. There might be 10,000 otherwise scary things outside the walls of the church. There might be 10,000 scary things in our own lives for you and I as believers. And any one of them can debilitate us or incapacitate our peace of mind. But Paul says, to some extent, that's up to you. To some extent, that's up to you. Because for every one of the 10,000 negative bad things that are out there, guess what? There's 10,000 good things, 10 million good things. There's all manner of things that you can choose to focus upon. That doesn't mean to be unrealistic about the dangers in your life. That doesn't mean you ignore obvious decisions that you have to make, some which are not easy. That's not what he's saying. But what he's suggesting is that even in the midst of making hard decisions or even in the midst of walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that we can have some peace and comfort in these things. First and foremost, because Jesus is with us. 
Thinking about Jesus, yes, if you're a Christian, it does give you some hope and joy. If you're not a Christian, it won't do you any good at all. If you are a Christian, it does encourage you to think about the one who's got your back in the midst of whatever hardships you're going through. Thinking about heaven to the degree you can even perceive or think about what it is. It should, in the heart of the Christian, give you some moments of peace and security. There's all manner of things we could talk about that should give you some joy no matter what hardships we're going through. That's Paul's recommendation here. He tells the Philippians, he tells First Pres at Gulfport, he tells believers everywhere. He says, whatever things are noble... Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue in these things, if any of them are praiseworthy, then meditate upon them. Meditate upon these things. Again, Paul is talking to hurting people. He's talking to people who have lost loved ones. He's talking to people who are sick. He's talking to people in that context who are under Roman oppression. He's talking to people who are living out their days in the valley of the shadow of death. And he's saying, look, you can still have joy in this thing. There's still his hope. It hasn't gone away. It's always been there just like Jesus is always at your side. But so often we get tunnel vision. We only focus on that which is bad or negative. Jesus would cup our chin this morning and focuses skyward and says, hey, remember how this story ends. Remember how this turns out. There are things to be excited about even this day. All right, on the one hand, we've said that our thoughts can impact our mood and our outlook and the like, and that seems pretty intuitive. With that said, the Bible also suggests that not only do our thoughts affect our mood, but our thoughts can affect our very character. As a man thinks, so he is. Paul said it this way in Romans 8. He said this. He said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. There is a correlation between where your mind is, the thoughts you think, and the things you do. For those who live, those who work, those who do according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, given the sinful aspect of our nature... It's not a shock that we're inclined to look at or think about sinful things. Pastorally, I encounter this with some frequency in counseling and interaction. There are those who are into pornography. There are those who can't get enough Stephen King novels. There are those teenagers who listen to music that they ought not listen to because it's taking them down. There's all manner of people. There's all manner of people who give in who give in through their actions and their choices and invite voices in their life that reflect the sin of their hearts and not their hope in Christ. This happens with some frequency. Look, it's not being puritanical or prude to call these things out. It's not being puritanical or prude to raise your eyebrows at the sort of stuff that God hates. And if you can defend your affinity for continuing to do the very things that God hates... If you can defend your affinity for deliberately, consistently welcoming in voices and shows and things that you know God hates and Christ died to save you from, if you can defend your affinity for that, God help you. It's one thing to fight it. It's another thing to say God's all right with this. He is not. Whatever the case, it's exceptionally hard to get your mind and your heart out of the gutter if you don't get your eyes and your ears out of it too. It's very hard to live the Christian walk. It's very hard to become more Christ-like and more godly if you deliberately, volitionally allow every sort of godless influence into your heart, into your life. 
onto the TV and the like. It's very hard to keep your mind out of the gutter if your eyes and your ears remain there. Now, again, I know you already know that. I know that that's not rocket science. You already know it's a bad idea to play with spiritual fire. The irony is, we all know it's a bad thing to play with spiritual fire, but how many of us have been burned from doing just that? How many of us have been scalded by doing the very things we know we ought not? Most of us, if not all of us. The thing is, although we can recognize that we have been inclined to do, and might be continuing to do even this very day, things that God hates and things that we ought not do, and we've been giving our mind and attention to those voices that we ought not listen to, even though we know that we shouldn't do it, even though we know that we shouldn't do it, what we don't know is just how deep Satan's hooks have dug into our spiritual flesh as a result of our doing these things. We don't know the spiritual filleting we have received at the enemy's hands by virtue of our own volitional decisions. We don't know that. Scripture would tell us, and we see it in today's text, that there are things that we ought not engage in, listen to, tune into, and there are things that are good and righteous. And Scripture would say, look, the things that are good and holy and virtuous, these things focus on, it'll be all the better for you if you do. Conversely, when a heart of flesh seeks out the things of the flesh, this is the path to spiritual death, decay at the very least. Scripture elsewhere, it would picture our hearts like a castle. And if you have children, you should think about your children's hearts this way. Our hearts are like a castle. A castle that's either well fortified, well built up, or weak. With points of vulnerability. And there is an enemy that is storming the gates. There is an enemy that is storming the gates. Proverbs said this. He said about our heart. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance. This is a picture of securing the castle. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. If that's true, if our heart is like a castle, then we should seek to vigilantly protect it from perverse and wicked thoughts that would seek to invade its walls and destroy that which is within. You know, earlier, I mentioned that, you know, you can just be in a crowded room, someone can yawn, and that can have an effect on you. Dear heavens, sometimes we think that because we're some mature people or we're older, or, you know, we got rhino skin, that we can put ourselves in certain situations. Remember the analogy I've used? Sometimes we know that we're sheep, but we think we're commando sheep and we can just march in all sorts of situations that we ought not and we can get through that unscathed. If you think about this, that you can be affected in your body, soul, and mind simply by someone yawning in your presence, what do you think listening to or watching all manner of perversity and depravity will do to you in time or to your children? If you can be impacted by so much, so little as a yawn, don't think that there's other things that can't get hold of you. Don't pretend you're the commando sheep. You are not. We are supposed to protect our heart. We're supposed to renew our mind. We're supposed to think different thoughts than we used to think. Paul in Romans 12 said, don't be conformed to this world. Do not become like the world. Do not be conformed to their image. Do not let the world's priorities become your priorities. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewal of your what? Of your mind. Don't be conformed into the image of the world, but be transformed through the renewal of your mind, the things you think about. 
Again, this is a call for you to do something volitionally. Yes, God saved you. At times past, God changed your heart. He made you something different today than you once were. But you have a responsibility today and this week unto sanctification and the renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind starts here. If you keep this on a bookshelf some distance from yourself, if you seldom encounter this book in any context, whether it's read aloud or you're reading it in your own devotional time, it's not doing you any good. Meanwhile, there are 10,000 other voices breathing worldly wisdom into your life. Don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. And the way you're transformed through the renewing of your mind is a study of God's Word. Psalm 119. The psalmist said this. He says, I will meditate on my God's precepts and will fix my eyes on His ways. The psalmist said that. Can you say the same thing? Can you and I say with confidence... This is me. I meditate on God's precepts. I fix my eyes on His ways. This is the call. When we do so, things will go increasingly right for us. Isaiah 26, you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. All right, let's look at our final verse now. Verse 9. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. You know, there's a zoo, it was actually a few years ago, but there was a zoo in southern Europe that had two lion enclosures, and in each of the lion enclosures there was an alpha lion in each, with I guess a few assorted lions in each enclosure as well. However, what the folks there at the zoo began to realize is that the alpha male in each of the two enclosures had a very different temperament. One of these alphas was generally calm and led the others accordingly. However, the other alpha in the other enclosure was prone to violent outbursts, I guess, such as it is for a lion. He was a more dangerous lion and a lion that you're not to mess with. Well, what the observers realized was that depending on who the alpha was and which other lions, especially the young ones, were kept in that enclosure, that the alphas had a dramatic effect on the temperament of those other lions that they were kept with. The alpha in either enclosure had a dramatic effect on the behaviors and temperament of those others that were introduced into its enclosure. With people, it's no different. We tend to emulate the attitudes, affections, and behaviors of others. Our behavior is largely learned from the moment we're an infant on up. Our behavior, our thoughts is largely, largely learned. Well, in verse 9, Paul's reminding his readers of just that. He says, there's all sorts of people you could emulate. And earlier in the letter, he said, hey, think about Timothy or Epaphroditus. These are good guys. You should be like them. Well, here in verse 9, he says, look, the things you learned from me, if you have any respect for me whatsoever, the things that you saw me do, the things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these you should do. And if you do it, the God of peace will be with you. Now, Paul, we know, is a humble guy, but at the same time, he's saying, look, I instructed you through the things that came out of my mouth. I taught you teachings and theology and gospel and all that. But at the same time, I taught you just by living among you and demonstrating what Christianity looks like. Then if you're confused and if you're anxious and if you're bickering, just please remember the sort of example I tried to be in your midst. This is his encouragement, verse 9. Now, did Paul have some secret to peace and contentment? Did he have some secret that you know, we just need to tap into and then we'll be just as peaceful as Paul is? Well, it's not really a secret. It sounds so basic, though, that many of us just dismiss it. It's got to be more than that. It's this. Paul kept Jesus at the center of his bullseye, center of his radar. That's it. Paul loved Jesus 
And he kept Jesus in the center. And because he did that, his mind, his hearts, his attitudes, and even his choices were directed in a Christ-like fashion. As we close up this morning, let me note, most self-professing Christians have Jesus somewhere on their radar. If you were to look at your Christian walk, if you're a professing Christian, Jesus is somewhere, somewhere in the picture. But for many of us, and this can be a temptation for our youth, for many of us, Jesus, he's there somewhere, but he's kind of off to the periphery. You know, we can look up to him at times, but he's not necessarily the center. Well, remember what I said before. Remember the driver's ed analogy. That which you focus on tends to direct your path. As long as Jesus is way off to the side, then you're not going to head towards him. We should make Jesus our center, and then we should act accordingly. Last chapter in Philippians 3, Paul said this. He says, look, I'm forgetting what lays behind. I've had all these experiences. I've done all these different things, some good, some bad. I forget what's behind. Jesus is my center. I'm pressing forward unto him. I'm forgetting what lays behind. I'm reaching forward to that which is ahead. Christian, this morning, you need to recognize and accept that our faith is inherently forward thinking. Hebrews 12, the author was writing to sinful, stumbling people, as some of us may be today, and he says, look, our faith is forward. Our faith is forward. Whatever you're engaged in, whatever you're doing this day, this week, whatever your walk of life has been up till this very moment, know this, this can be the moment of change. He said this in Hebrews 12. He said, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight. Let's lay aside the sin that clings so closely to us. And let's run the race with endurance that is set before us. This morning, many of us have Jesus off to the side. At least some of us have Jesus off to the side. Some of us are not running the race. We're at the snack bar. The good news, the good news in this text and others, whether it's Paul writing or the author of Hebrews here, the good news is that today can be the day of change. Today can be the day where you say, look, I'm going to get a hold of this thing in my life. I'm going to start putting this sin issue to death. Or you know what? The Bible has been over here, and I'm not content with that any longer. I'm going to make this more front and center, even if I just do it one verse or one chapter at a side. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, of which what we see this morning is a small microcosm of that greater cloud, set aside every weight, set aside the sin that clings so closely, run the race with endurance that's set before us. Today can be the day that we step back from the abyss. Today can be the day that we chart a different course. Today can be the day that we start to renew our minds in that which is good and holy and true. Today can be the day which we change our focus, and we start becoming the man or woman that God has called us out of this world to be. Let's pray for the grace to do so. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.